0: Today is April 19th, 2010, and my guest is Paul Romer of Stanford University. Paul, welcome back to Econ Talk.
1: It's great to be back again, Russ.
0: Paul, well, you're championing a whole new way of economic development called charter cities. Tell us what charter cities are and uh, why they might make the world a better place.
1: Well, let me start with the practical and then give you the more abstract a- academic. The practical suggestion is that we could identify unoccupied pieces of land somewhere on Earth that are good locations for building a city of 5, 10, maybe 20 million people. We could establish a system of rules that would apply in this new city, and then people would have the choice about whether to opt in to uh, live under those those rules. So it's unoccupied land, and a charter which specifies a rule and a choice for residents, investors, employers uh, to come in or, or not. In practice, that's what it would mean, and it would take some governments to come together and establish what piece of land. How do we set up a legal governance structure that would actually enforce credibly out into the future the rules specified into the in, in the charter? Now, what what's the larger academic? Um, motivation here. (laughs) There's a very broad recognition amongst people who are thinking about development that the bottleneck here is systems of rules that hold people back. Rules that could be different. We have demonstrated cases of better rules and with these inefficient rules people are very far away from the efficiency frontier. That if we shifted to better rules, everybody could be better off. People living in poor countries could be better off. People living in the rest of the world could be better off. So I think it's an urgent priority for us as economists to understand the dynamics of rules. What we used to call institutions, but I think institutions is too vague a term. It's really just the rules that govern how we interact with each other. We need to understand the dynamics of rules. We need to understand how... People can move from inefficient rules to more efficient rules, and one should think of a charter city as a practical proposal for speeding up the rate of improvement in the rules that people live under.
0: Okay, well, let's start with the academic understanding about better rules being understood versus worse rules. First, give us some examples of what those might be, and then answer the obvious question is of, well, if there's such good rules, why aren't there more of them?
1: Um let's take Haiti, for example, which has been on everyone's minds recently. Paul Collier wrote a report for the UN just before the earthquake, and it's fairly specific about the kinds of rules that, that hold Haiti back. For one thing, it was against the law in Haiti for a private firm to produce power for sale to others. Uh, it was also the case that even if they had, had gotten rid of that law, and said, okay, we'll let private providers come in and uh, provide power, there was also a pretty significant risk that if someone came in and built a major power plant to sell power at lower cost than electricity currently uh, used to cost in Haiti, there's a a pretty good chance that the rules there in Haiti could lead to expropriation of the returns of the firm that invests in that power plant. Or conversely, there's a chance that the firm might come in and a competitive bid saying, oh, we'll provide electricity at, at low cost, and then ex-post use its monopoly power to, uh, to hold up uh, the residences of, of Haiti. So what's missing in Haiti right now are rules that would allow the kind of win-win deal that would let Haitians get access to much cheaper electricity than they can get right now and would let foreign investors come in and earn a return on, on investment like one that provides electricity for them.
0: Well, we have a lot of bad rules in the United States. So, you know, people might disagree about which are the bad ones, but we have some bad ones. So, why is the United States? What makes the United States different from Haiti? In the United States, there's political forces that keep the price of sugar high, that keep the artificially make low skill labor expensive, that give the government a monopoly over schools in much of the country. We can again, not everybody's going to agree on which or the bad rules, someone with a different philosophical outlook might pick a different set. But everybody agrees that the U.S. could be much better. We might be wrong about that, but we all think we have some idea of how to move in the right direction. And now you're saying, well, we know how to make Haiti move in the right direction, but but they can't get there from here. But we can sometimes. So what's the difference in the underlying political structure, presumably, that keeps us on a better path than Haiti?
1: Yeah, well, first, um, you have to keep uh – the magnitudes in mind here, and, and specifics help clarify. Facts on the ground help clarify. So, the fact that electricity costs Haitians two to three times as much as it costs us—that's telling you something about worse rules in Haiti than in the United States.
0: Well, sugar costs another, about another
1: th- example would be if you take a Haitian worker yeah. and move her from Haitian Haiti to the United States, her wages go up. By a factor of you know five or ten, almost almost immediately. So there's something about the environment in which that Haitian can work in the United States. That's partly she can get access to cheap power, but also reasonable road access, uh, other firms to trade with, reasonable export opportunities. The rules in the United States are dramatically better than the rules in, in Haiti. And if, if those don't persuade you that they're dramatically better. Just think about the probability that uh, a child is going to get kidnapped and, and held for ransom. Uh, in Haiti, they couldn't prevent that kind of kidnapping from, from taking place. In the United States, for the most part, we, we do that quite well. So the the magnitude of the difference in the quality of the rules in Haiti compared to the United States is huge. Now, the second thing is there's no suggestion here that Uh, outsiders are going to come in and sort of steer um, Haitians and tell them what rules to, to live under, tell them what to do. The only suggestion here is to give Haitians a choice. Right now almost none of them can move to the United States and live and work under the better rules that operate here. But we could create some other places with different rules and then let the Haitians choose. And If the rules were better in the kind of the obvious ways I was just describing, uh, you let the market operate, you let providers of utilities and basic services operate, you have basic sanitation, you have basic security protections against crime, the evidence is very clear that that millions of Haitians would want to go there. So the whole point about charter cities is take rules that already work, replicate them elsewhere, work tolerably well, they're not perfect that are much better than the rules that people in poor countries live under, create places with those better rules, and give uh, people living with really bad rules a choice.
0: So why isn't – it raises a couple of questions. Let me start with the with one I think I hinted at. Maybe it didn't make it explicit. So why wouldn't the Haitian government put these rules in right now, create, create this this city uh, that, that would have, quote, better rules, and then they could capture some of the gains?
1: That's exactly the question that we need to be thinking about. And it's a question which I think is a very deep and difficult question. And we as economists have not paid enough attention to it. For example, we haven't thought hard enough about what motivates voters when they vote in an election, express preferences about uh, changing rules. But it's not just... um, um, <clears throat> a question about about Haiti. Transpose it to the United States and think about a move from our existing traffic systems to ones that have uh, congestion pricing. So we charge cars for uh, the, uh, the, the the times when they use roads when road capacity is scarce. We could move to that kind of rule. We could redistribute the benefits that would come from that to even people who use public transport who, who time shift when they when they drive um, right now the evidence suggests that it's very hard to persuade people in the United States to move from an existing equilibrium to something uh, that could clearly be be more efficient if that example doesn't grab you another obvious obvious one is the um, the fisheries all around the world where we know how to make everybody better off by, stop, by stopping the overfishing with different kinds of rules, but we can't get the people involved to agree to the rule change. So it's a very big puzzle, but it's one that we haven't paid enough attention to, and charter cities, I hope, will force people to think about why it's a better way to change rules than, say, something like our usual political processes.
0: Well, I don't think that's the best example, either one of those, because – I think in the back of many economists' minds – and I don't think it's in the back of yours, Paul, but you can correct me if I'm wrong – is some concept of um, costless redistribution to take care of the people who have vested interests in the status quo. and I think it's extremely difficult to do in the case of congestion pricing, and I suspect that most of the benefits from congestion pricing would be captured by rent seekers who would get the expansion of funds – but let's put that to the side. I, I thought, uh,
1: yeah. well, just, just on that one, uh, you, you and I have actually talked about this one before. If you look at how Stockholm used the funds associated with their congestion charges to supply more uh, more public transit, you can actually see that there are ways to make this a real move to the Pareto frontier that everybody can be better off.
0: But not um, the people who drive a lot and who have to pay higher taxes. It's well, hard.
1: Sure. It's oh sure, hard. because because they, they they drive uh, at, with less congestion, uh, well, t- and and they've got the option of of taking a lower cost public transit that they didn't have before.
0: I, I disagree, but let's put that to the side. I, I so think that I think that's that one.
1: But if that one doesn't <laughs> grab you, just think about the fisheries example. Well, I, it's
0: the same the, problem.
1: we well, got a, you know the the people who do the fishing typically get allocated the tradable quotas when um, uh, when when you move to a system of, of tradable uh, quotas.
0: But you have to distribute them. Disproportionately to the, uh, or, excuse me, proportionately to the stake they have in the current system, yeah. and that's very hard to do. It's not so easy. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, well, anyway, I, let's put I that think, to the side. I think, I think I think you're kind of finding the traditional economic argument about interests and opposition, and I think missing the deeper point, which is that there's something else going on here about how people. Um, decide what kinds of rules they want to live under. Oh, I agree. This is is tied up with notions about right and wrong. People have notions about what's the right way to do things. Independent of the instrumental value of those rules, we need to understand that dynamic of right and wrong and understand why it can get in the way of a move to a much more efficient uh, equilibrium.
0: Well, I I couldn't agree more, but but I I thought you were going to talk about uh, credibility and, and keeping promises in a non-democratic system. And I think – I assume that's as big a problem as the ones we're talking about.
1: So credibility is another very important problem. Um, but let, let's let's come back to that in, in a moment and just focus on this issue of the, – the, the reason I like rules as a way to describe what's going on instead of institutions is you, it helps you start to break things down. You can look at very specific rules. And as soon as you do that, you see that there are some rules which are formal rules enforced by courts and police officers. And there are other rules that are part of people's norms. They are normative in the sense that it seems like the right thing to do, and it's also normal. Everybody else does this, so it's the right thing to do. And there's a lot of evidence now that people will individually seek to punish somebody who violates uh, a norm. So without a formal system of enforcement, like the courts and the police, we establish certain kinds of uniform patterns of behavior based on norms. And again, use a sort of a trivial example from, from traffic, in New York City, the norm is that it's okay to jaywalk. If you can get across the street without getting hit by a car, that's an efficient thing to do. That's right. In Zurich, the norm is that it's wrong to jaywalk, and people will scold you if you uh, try and cross the street, even when there's no traffic, if you're crossing against the light. So we've got two different equilibria, both enforced primarily by norms about what people think is right. And then we have to ask ourselves what can change a group of people from a New York norm to a Zurich norm, or, or vice versa? And how do we make that kind of transition when we're dealing with a much more important issue like let's allow for private provision of utility services instead of let's, uh, uh, let's make sure that all utilities are provided by the government. And, and that is the piece that I think economists haven't grappled with is the role of norms about right and wrong as they play out in the political process.
0: Well, one economist who grappled with it a little bit, and sometimes a lot, was uh, Hayek. And Hayek understood, as you're talking, uh, the point you're making, which I think is extremely important, which is that there are lots of laws that are not legislated, but that emerge from social interactions and competition among other other rules, and, and they become part of our lives when we don't think about them. And I think understanding that and understanding the contribution they make to our everyday lives is spectacularly uh, important – To tell a a very quick story, I think I've told before, a friend of mine who knew someone who had made reservations uh, for a conference to be held in Russia shortly after the end of the Soviet Union. And after, uh, as the conference approached, the hotel contacted the the friend and said, I've got bad news. I can only give you half as many rooms as as I'd promised. And the friend said, what do you mean? We had a contract. And the entrepreneur, the hotel owner, said, well, sue me. I got a better offer, and I don't feel like keeping my contract. And that kind of thing, it has happened in America, but it's not very common. For one reason, is it's easier to sue people here, for better or for worse, but that's not the main reason it doesn't happen very often, I think. I think the main reason it doesn't happen very often is that somebody who does that feels pretty lousy about themselves. And our culture punishes people both through reputational issues and through conscience and all kinds of informal mechanisms— to make that an unattractive outcome even though in the short run it's in your interest to break the deal that you made. And yeah. so that's an advantage we have that isn't quantified. It's not a tech, in a textbook. It's a cultural norm that, that is in the United States. It's extremely uh, helpful to have. So, so here's my question about charter cities. If we impose – that's not the wrong word. If we establish an option for people in a very poor country – to live under a different set of rules is it really imaginable that we could design the, that anyone could design those rules from the outside and i don't mean from the outside literally i don't mean that it's a foreign entity or anything could anyone internally design those rules and create what we would call a city a city is you know as jane jacobs has written about eloquently and she's got a very high bent a city's Effectiveness it's, what makes a city pleasant to live isn 't really usually anything to do with good uh, urban planning. it comes from all kinds of intangible things that are hard to point to that make a city civilized that emerge that aren 't designed and a charter city almost by definition at least to some extent is designed so tell me how you think that might that problem might get solved uh, or or might be uh, less worrisome than it appears
1: yeah so so let me. Let me play back to your question, because I'm I'm basically going to dispute the the presumption in in the the question. So let me play it back to you in a different context. There's no nation and no economy in the United States. Some people want to come over and start uh, a new nation here. It can't possibly succeed, because if you're designing new rules in the United States, that means the economy is going to be organized according to central planning. Okay. Yep. Now, now you, you see the flaw in the yeah, logic. Yeah, I there? do. Okay. It, it, when, when, for example, because this is a real case. William Penn set a charter for Pennsylvania and said, "This is going to be a place where you can have guaranteed freedom of religion," and then that attracted a bunch of people who believed in freedom of religion, and then a lot of other details uh, grew up uh, supporting uh, the system of law there in, in Pennsylvania. But in setting rules like that, it, it didn't mean that Penn had to be a you know a central planner of the layout of the streets in, in Philadelphia. So for some reason, when you talk about cities, people have trouble distinguishing this notion of we could have something that says guaranteed freedom of religion or freedom of speech or protection of contracts. Uh, we could put those into the rules in a place without deciding whether the minimum square footage for a small shop on entry level of the building has to be at least 500 square feet. I, I don't. I just don't understand why people want to leap from the rules that are obvious and sensible and easy to apply to you know a bunch of other ones that are. That are problematic.
0: That's a good and, point. And, and, let, and
1: let's—I mean, let's, let's be let's be more specific about Haiti too. I mean, it isn't just protection of contracts through the legal system, but it's also your kids will not be kidnapped and held for uh, you know twenty, forty, sixty dollars in, in ransom and then killed um, if uh, if you don't pay the ransom. We, its not, it doesn't take some mystical long-run historical process. To put in place a system which protects contracts and keeps kids from, from being uh kidnapped. And then, you know, if you want the city to be organized uh with no zone no zoning rules and you know it's kinda like Houston or Jane Jacobs run wild, that's great. If you want it to be like Houseman's Paris when he built the sewers and the Grand Boulevard, you can do that too. But all of that detailed city yeah. planning stuff is really order. quite different from, you know, you don't want kids to be kidnapped. You want protection of contracts.
0: No, those are second order. I agree with you. And I and I certainly agree with you that one of the best rules is, is that there aren't going to be a lot of rules. I guess the question is, in your ideal or plan or vision for, say, the first charter city or the first five, uh, who's going to make those rules? Because you and I, I think, are very sympathetic to what, a small list of rules would be that everyone would agree on. Who's, who's going to make the decision about which rules are not so good and which rules are good? What, do yeah. you th- what I mean, are you thinking in practical terms?
1: So, uh, again, let me, let me push this into another context where we, it doesn't seem to worry us so much. N- new cities as startups are really a lot like new firms. When new firms are created, they have internal rules including informal rules that are the corporate culture of the organization. And, you know, do we worry, oh, my God, who's going to write the cultures and the internal rules for all the new startup firms? You know, we don't really worry about it too much. We just let firms start up and compete. And if people want to go work for them and they're productive and successful, then... That's all we need, and some of them won't succeed, uh, some of them will. I think in, exact, in exactly the same way, we should have entry of cities with various kinds of rules and and the real test is, do millions of people want to move there, and then once they move there, do they, do they thrive and and therefore uh, the the people want to stay so you know we can get into the details of like okay, so who's the entrepreneur yeah who's the person like? William Penn, who says, okay, here we're going to have guaranteed freedom of religion. And I think that's really a, I think that's really a detail. You know, we can, we can talk about that if you want. But the, the more important point is to unleash the same kind of dynamic of choice and competition about sets of rules that we have, uh, you know, about, say, city-level governance rules, that we have in, say, the, the rules for, um, you know, how you, how you run a corporation.
0: Well, I don't have any doubt that we don't have to worry about those things, You know, whether there's going to be casual Friday or whether people are going to be paid in kind versus cash for various benefits, et cetera, et cetera. The market, yeah, there's competition. But in, I think we have to get to some of the nuts and bolts because I don't understand them. So help, yeah. help me understand how yeah. uh, we would get the first one. Talk, talk about a, a generic first charter city how it might emerge, and what its uh, functioning would, would be like.
1: Sure. So there, there are three conceptual roles that nations can play here. One is the role of a host. Some nation will have some land that will host the, the city. Another is the role of a source. It could be a nation uh, from which people who go to the city come. The third is the, is the role of a guarantor. And these roles can be mixed and matched in a bunch of different ways. For example, India might try and copy what China did with its special administrative zones where cities grew up very quickly. So you could have the Indian government being the guarantor, uh, saying, we're going to protect contracts in this city. India could also be the source of the people, and um, it could be the host. So the Indian government, federal government, could say to the various states, we're going to run a contest, we're going to compensate the state that puts together a big parcel of land big enough for a city, and then... We're going to set up a special governance regime for this city, and here's the charter that specifies how things will, will operate within that city. That's very close to what many nations have done when they've created um, special economic zones, where in those zones they allowed different kinds of rules to operate than they allow in the, in the rest of the country. It's often a good way for a nation to reform its rules because if you try and change them for the whole country, you get opposition because some people don't want to have the rules forced on them. But if you create a new place where the new rules are established, then people have the choice about opting in. So that's one where basically the, you know, the, you know, the prime minister in India and the legislature there could set up a charter city within India, and then they'd have to make a choice about how they wanted local governance to happen within that city. They might, for example, opt for something that looks like the kind of governance we have of central banks. You appoint a strong leader. It's kind of like the strong mayor movement in the United States. You have clear accountability and a clear mandate for that leader, what that leader is supposed to do, and then uh, that person gets uh, reappointed uh, periodically by, uh, by somebody in the, in the center. So, you know, that's one model. You could have a different model where um, there's competition within the city in some political process to elect the head of the central bank and, or, you know, the, the analog of the central bank, the executive leader. And you could compare, you, you could run cities both ways and see which one uh, turns out better. Now, a more a more interesting case would be to take a case like, like Haiti right now. Um, imagine that um, Brazil was the host. Brazil says, we've got empty land, and we're really deeply invested in Haiti, and we're not sure if we can create a stable, functioning system of rules in Haiti, but we're going to create some land here in Brazil, and we'll create a special area where Brazilian police enforce the the rules, and the the Haitians are free to come. So Brazil could be the host and the guarantor, and uh, source countries could be Haiti and then other other places from the Caribbean. Um, In the case of Brazil, they would take the initiative and saying, okay, here's the charter that would operate here, and here's how we're going to administer it, and then say to the Haitians, look, You've got an option to come here if if, if you like. Uh, the United States could do the could do the same thing. To, to be provocative, I, I've tried to get people to think about. Well, the United States could even do this in Guantanamo Bay if you want. We've got a piece of land, yep. pretty you know, pretty reasonable size. Hardly anybody uh, living there. We could set up a, set up a special structure there. Specify how it's going to be governed, and then give give Haitians the choice. There there are a lot of different variations that one could. Uh, Work out here, the charter would inevitably be the outcome of either the initiative of a single existing government or a negotiation between uh, between existing governments, and that charter would almost always specify some kind of executive position and then some kind of process for um, you know succession and uh, a mandate for that for that executive.
0: You know, it's interesting. We could, of course could also just let Haitians come here freely. Uh, presumably most people find that politically un, un not unpalatable. Uh, I'd certainly be uh, happy to have them under the right uh, mm-hmm. conditions of welfare, et cetera. I think it would be great if we let poor people come to the United States. As you say, their incomes usually jump many fold. Uh, they're very productive. They'd make our lives better. And as long as they didn't live off our welfare system, which is a big handicap, I don't think they want to live off our welfare system, but the fact that they could means that people aren't going to let them in. Uh, we, but we don't have that luxury right now politically. I don't think. Right. Um, but it, it's hard to think of of Brazilians or Americans giving space for poor people outside their culture within their borders. I think the Guantanamo Bay example is very interesting.
1: Um, the other question that, that comes to mind, although just, I mean, just to be clear, the the, the Brazilian example could operate much like Guantanamo, in the sense that, you know, Brazil could set aside some land. They could even maintain border controls around this zone and say, you can come and live as permanent residents in this zone and near the rules that would apply there. This doesn't give you the right to be a resident of Brazil or to get access to all the laws that, are, the, that apply to residents of Brazil, but you can come reside in this in this special zone. And it's conceivable that the ability to, to customize rules in a case like this would make it possible for us to do what as you point out it's impossible for us to do at the moment which is to be more uh to be more open to give more people access to rules that we've already got up and running that that work pretty well
0: but you know as well as anybody does that part of the reason it would be great to come to the United States is the opportunity to trade with with 300 million people and inter- sure. and interact with them so you don't really want to create an independent, tiny little place. They'd have to have the opportunity yeah, but, to
1: at least no, trade. Look, I mean, Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong was this independent, tiny little place, and it, it traded with everybody. Correct. So, um, you know, I mean, a little, a little Hong Kong like zone in the United States could easily trade with the the, the rest of the United States. Um,
0: yes, uh, but but much of the service trade would be internal unless you let these folks, uh, you know. Move in and out, and of course, in some cultures, that that's the way they solve this problem. Indirectly, they have guest workers who come but don't
1: live there, or don't live there for, for a yeah. very long time. Um, just, I, just just one point I, I want to yeah. push on is is that we as economists often say, well, we we're you know we're in favor of more migration of of, of poor people, but you know there's a political impediment, so you know, gosh, our, our great ideas are going to be stymied. But that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a dodge, I think. We're, we're just not grappling with the big questions. Right now, 700 million people say they're ready to move permanently to another country. And, and a lot of the people who, who say they aren't ready to move probably would agree to move if, uh, um, if they thought it was uh, it a realistic prospect and they knew somebody who lived someplace else. So there, there are a lot of people in the world who are desperate to get away from um, bad rules.
0: Where they are, so, yeah.
1: If, and, and it's pretty predictable where they, where they come from, too. I mean, if you just look at, the, you know, the worst governed places in the world, the poorest places in the world, you know, most people want to leave those places. So we, we've got to have a solution that scales. And, you know, we could say, well, we could take a couple hundred thousand more people in the United States. You know, that, that just, that's just a drop in the bucket. We really need to think about, you know, how can we create places for a billion, a, a billion people? Yeah. And then, you know, well, if you had, uh, you know, 100 cities of size 10 million you know then you know then that's uh that's something we could uh we could contemplate
0: so let's let's talk for a minute about the um what might be a practical path that could get us from here to there. Um, one would be really good. Going from zero to one would make a really big difference, yeah. right? It would help you go from one to a hundred. Yep. Um, how might we get from zero to
1: one? First, let me, let me argue that, that Hong Kong was, was, in a sense, number one, but it was done incorrectly in the sense that the deal between China and Britain was one that was forced on China. China did not voluntarily agree to the, to the deal with Britain. People in China now will say that it turned out so well for China, they'd do it over again if they could, but at least in the beginning it was, it was forced but hong kong is at least an illustration that this that this can happen it has happened historically philadelphia or pennsylvania is another illustration but you know that's even more remote historically to do one today what you need is a leader of a country with a lot of land and not that many people who sees the importance of providing manufacturing and service sector jobs and therefore sees the importance of having a city and can tell that just with his own uh, residence, he's unlikely to get to a city of sufficient size to make it an attractive, you know, hub city for the world. Um, there's a you know there's a set of conversations I have which are going to be relatively public in um, the next the next few months with the previous president of Madagascar who said that this would be a great idea for for, for Madagascar. That if they if there's a special zone in the southwest uh, part of of Madagascar, where almost nobody lives, that the Malagash could move and live there and work in areas like Garment Assembly, uh, that people from uh, throughout the the sub-Saharan Africa could also move there. You could get to a population of 10 million people, have it be a a hub, which is kind of a major connecting point between Asia and uh, and Africa. And um, if he had a partner who joined in this city uh, with him, he could solve this problem of commitment, long-term commitment to investors in, in infrastructure because he knew that there was a risk of political unrest in the future and that investors wouldn't come in if the only guarantee of their investments was by uh, the president of Madagascar. So so how, would, how would the he partnership was, work? He was, pretty, he was very open to this, and, and we talked about um, partner countries that he would be comfortable working with, and uh, the kind of structure one could imagine is, is something like uh, a treaty which would assign administrative rights over a piece of land for uh, for some period of time to either another nation or some consortium of, of nations, uh, of which, you know, the, the host country, like Madagascar, could, could be a member of that, that consortium. And... Um, that treaty would assign administrative rights, and then the administrative rights would be, uh, meaning the legal system and uh, the uh, regulatory enforcement, would be provided by this uh, by this other entity. And then, depending on how the the charter specifying all this is set up, it could be that the city eventually returns to governance under you know under Madagascar. But then you have to plan ahead about well, what about all these people who've been permanent residents in this city but aren't yet you know, citizens of Madagascar. Do they become citizens? Or it could be there's some vote or some decision in the future about unification, or it could be that it continues indefinitely, uh, independently. But this was something that he was eager to pursue, and uh, I was starting conversations with other um, European nations who could play the role of the guarantor, and then there was a coup in Madagascar, and he got run out. So that one's not going to go forward, but there are other countries like that uh, where the leaders see the same potential for really jump starting growth through rapid urbanization. And I think that's the path where we'll get the first one.
0: Let, let's step outside the developed world for a second. Let's talk about, um, I mean, the developing world. And let's talk about the United States for a minute. Yeah. Um, a lot of states with some serious budget problems. Um, have you thought at all about, say, California? starting a charter city or uh, you know, there's a, a movement, the free state movement, the idea that a bunch of folks with who want free market rules would move to a particular state. Uh, New Hampshire has been suggested uh, where they could use political influence to change the rules in those states. The United States is r- rather inflexible, I would say, and, and we don't see that kind of experimentation. Uh, a lot of people have said – we we do see the kind of experiments in say healthcare that we, should give us information about what works and doesn't work, but it, there isn't that much experimentation in, in the United States. Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Um, well, the first point is that as as unhappy as we are with them, the rules in the United States are still just dramatically better than most places on earth. And so the United States is still the place that most of those people who are willing to move permanently want, want to come, so to me, it seems a less urgent problem to address the the weaknesses of our existing rules, to find a, a dynamic which would improve our existing rules. It's a less pressing issue than to address the the comparable problem in sub-Saharan Africa or you know Haiti or uh, you know uh, Southeast Asia. Um, that's the first point. The, the second point is that from a purely practical matter, we've had pretty free entry into the city building business here in the United States. It's pretty open, free, equilibrium with movement between cities. So we're not scarce. Cities are not scarce in the United States. So building a brand new city probably doesn't create that much additional value. If a whole bunch of people moved to this new city, the land there would get more valuable. But a lot of it would come as a reduction in value in land in other places that people leave from. So the total gains to society from creating entirely new cities in the United States are you know, probably not that large, whereas in the developing world, the gains are just enormous. And those gains can be used to finance things like the infrastructure that you need in these these new cities. So it's much easier to pull off this huge movement towards the efficiency frontier in the rest of the world. So those are the two reasons why I personally am not as interested in trying to use the charter city as a way to improve the dynamics of rule setting here in the United States. All of that said, I I think it's still worth asking these questions about how do we change our rules, and is there any way to create something that looks a little bit like a startup dynamic? In in a way, you know, the United States right now is a little bit like um, Sears Roebuck before, you know, when discount retailing was coming in. And, you know, or or, or maybe IBM when the PC revolution was coming. It's kind of like, oh man, we got to change our rules. We got to get up to speed. You know, the world's changing. We got to fix our rules. But it's a really contentious, difficult, slow, agonizing process for a big collection of existing people to change their rules. If you could create more opportunities for something that looks like a startup where some different rules could be tried. And then people could self select into these rules, and then if they worked, they're demonstrations, and uh, they 're more effective I, you know i think I think some value would come of that in the United States, but we just have to think about um, how to how to structure that and it, it, it might not be tied to cities for the reasons I was just I was just describing but the one other thing that I think should be part of the discussion here in the United States is other ways that we can change our rules. For changing rules, um, Stockholm is a really interesting example. I described before how they actually they made the change to congestion pricing with a really clever system where they actually implemented the congestion pricing system and the extra bus lines and everything about what the new system would be like for seven months. so they agreed through legislation that they were going to do that, and then they agreed they were going to turn it off. so they took away the bus lines, they stopped the congestion pricing, and then they held a referendum about whether or not to go back to the congestion pricing and uh, you know the extra public transit. So I thought that was a very clever way to sort of uh, uh, add I love to that. the you know the <laughs> democratic process, as sort that's of a try cool. before you 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 buy it. And it actually passed in, in Stockholm after that uh, initiative. That's one that's one kind of initiative that I think has improved rule setting in the United States. The other one that I think has been successful has been. To give legislatures more of an up-down vote on a matter, and less ability to um, take pork yeah. barrel and yeah. log roll and uh, you know negotiate over the self-interest of the particular uh, legislator. So, for example, the base um, the base reallocation and closing commission, yep. which brings proposals to Congress, the Congress just votes them up or down. It's much better for deciding which bases to close. Um, the 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 creation of the Federal Reserve Board where the Congress gets to vote about who's who sits on the board of governors of the Fed, but the Congress doesn't get to vote on a day to day basis about what interest rates should be. Um, the Fed has has worked uh better as well. Um, cities are also moving towards more of this strong accountable mayor system and away from a whole bunch of different elected bodies where, you know, every elected player can Get his or her mitts on some piece of pork and trade it for some other piece of pork and some move up the system so so I think there's there's changes in the structure of democratic uh, uh, decision making that could uh, move us towards more uh, you know more sensible rule setting than uh, some of the systems we've got right now,
0: but the fact is is that the United States was established in a way for better for worse and People can disagree about this, but it is, I think, undeniable that we have a lot of inertia in our system. We don't have a lot of mechanisms at the federal level. The state level actually has, I think, more opportunities for for creativity. But at the federal level, uh, there are a lot of built-in rules about changing the rules that make it hard to change the rules. And those of us – on either side of the political spectrum, whether you want bigger government or less government – I frequently find this frustrating, but I think it's one of the great uh, strengths of the United States, even though it can be frustrating any one year and on any one issue, that it is very hard uh, to change things. And, um, and it, it's interesting, the example you gave about Stockholm, in the United States, I think we pay a lot of um, lip service, that's not the right word, we have a lot of uh, mythology around majority rule. But we also have a lot of respect for the minority. So large changes uh, tend, I think, not to be effectively majority rule decisions in the United States, and that for whatever reason, uh, that has worked out pretty well. Uh, but it's an interesting you know, – for a smaller, more cohesive, more homogeneous society like Sweden, that might be a more effective method.
1: So, so I think this, this whole line of thinking about formal rules and informal rules – And our informal rules are determined by what we see others doing, and that determines what we think is normal in the sense of normative and usual. And then what we think is usual influences the views we express in the political sphere about how we might change the 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 formal rules. I think this framework gives us a much richer basis for thinking about tweaking, uh, you know, tweaking the rules for changing rules. What I call the meta rules. In a way that they cumulatively take us in a uh, in a positive direction. So it's a more subtle question in the United States, but in the developing world, I just unambiguously, the single most effective thing we could do is give more poor people the chance to move permanently with their families to uh, other systems of rules that they choose as being better than the ones that they they currently live with, and. And if, in doing that, we facilitated this transition from largely rural settlement to largely urban settlement, which we know is much more um, efficient, productively, and just leads to a more stimulating life, that could really um, make a, a huge difference in the, the quality of life for, for billions of, of people.
0: Do You think um, is that is that the major reason that China? has seen um, the massive migrations of the hundreds of millions of people out of the rural area into the into the city that they 'd have they'd moved longer long ago, but until the rules were changed about your ability to literally to move and what what life was like in those cities they they were stuck
1: yeah um, there were two things that held back urbanization in China one were restrictions on movement by people, especially movement as um, permanent residents, the other were Local restrictions on things like infrastructure sure. that you need to make a livable city for for people to uh, to move into. And in the last um, couple of decades, the Chinese have been removing those restrictions, and um so people have been just flooding into cities, which is where they want to live. It's where they find the jobs. it's It's uh, exciting to them. So the government is is removing rules that kept people out of cities. But it's also the thing about cities is that it takes some rules to make a city work. you know you've gotta have some rules about sanitation yeah. and traffic congestion and air police. pollution, and you know even Jane Jacobs, I think would oh, say yeah. no, no. you know we gotta we gotta have we gotta have rules on on this stuff, and it's always this mixture of formal rules and informal rules you know in Paris, there are police whose job is to go out and ticket people ticket men. For urinating on public walls, you know so they have to have formal rules it's crucial in rule. paris to yep. you know to, to you know these uh, enforce these posters you see about vent durene um you know most cities that's enforced by an informal rule you know we don't we don't have yep. to pl- have the police give tickets to tell people not to yep. you know to piss on the uh, piss on the streets, but one way or the other <laughs> it's not going to be a very livable city if people don't follow certain rules about uh whether it's yeah, uh, yeah you know, formal or
0: informal yeah, that's right
1: yeah so uh, so the, the, the things that you need a government to do is, one, get out of the way, remove the things that are stopping people from coming together, but then, two, create a structure that will somehow enforce some rules that makes the quality of life uh, good for all, all of the people that live there. And, you know, those, those rules can be any mixture of informal and formal, but they just, they just got to work. And, and how you adjust the balance between formal and informal is going to depend on the population of, of, of people you attract.
0: Well, how did you come to be um involved in this project and and why is it a passion for you?
1: Well when i started graduate school we we didn't have any tools for thinking about progress. We had this thing we called technological progress, and you know it was just this black box and I thought progress is the most interesting thing in history. Well, just explaining how it happened and then maybe bringing it to more people, you know, being able to uh, speed up progress, uh, you know, we need to understand that process. The first thing to understand was the discovery of new technological ideas. What is it? What does it mean to have an idea that people can share instead of a physical object? What are the economic consequences of that? They're actually quite profound when you can share concepts, it, it, things like, it's very valuable to trade with a lot of people but it's also very valuable to live right next door to a lot of people. Yeah. So urbanization and globalization are both signs of the power of sharing ideas with with other people and why being around other people is actually a good thing not a, not a bad thing. So I worked for uh you know a dozen years on the economics of technological ideas.
0: And we did a podcast when, on that
1: which Yeah, but which then is great. when you look at the failures of development. You know that, 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 that technological ideas should say that poor countries should be able to catch up really fast, because they don't have to reinvent the wheel; they just copy it. But yet, and you see that in some cases. But the glaring uh, counterexamples are the ones where they don't. They don't catch up. And so I became persuaded that we had to understand. And at the time, I started thinking about well, it's we got to understand the institutions. We have got to understand politics. We got to understand what's going on inside people's heads when they decide to stick with rules that clearly make everybody worse off, even though, given the chance, they'd move to some place that has has different rules. And it was it was that shift away from technological ideas towards these ideas as rules, and this distinction between rules as laws as opposed to rules as norms that. Um, came out of this thinking about this this notion of, of a of a charter city?
0: So you've had a very unusual career. You were a extraordinarily productive academic doing the work you were talking about for those dozen years. Mm-hmm. Then you became an entrepreneur, you founded an education company, mm-hmm. Applia and now you're involved in a different kind of entrepreneurship, what we might call – I guess it's called social entrepreneurship.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, which is a
0: strange category, but yeah. uh, two things. What proportion of your time, roughly, uh, do you spend on this particular project of Charter Cities? And I ask that because you know, this is, there's a cerebral aspect to this project, but, of course, there's a very non-cerebral part, which is those people yeah. whose kids are getting kidnapped. Right. and who are living on a dollar a day and, and who don't, in a different world, they wouldn't. So I think I want to make sure our listeners have a feel for, this isn't just some clever, provocative, academic idea that, that you're writing a, a a paper on with a lot of mathematical equations. So right. talk about how much time you devote to this roughly and um, what are the practical uh, likelihood of of this kind of project happening in your in your in your vision. Uh, I just want to make it clear that this is not just a pie in the sky idea. It might end up being one. We hope not. But,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, on on the kind of the career, I think you kind of nailed it right. Which is that I had an initial phase of my career that was kind of like just curiosity driven basic science. I really wanted to understand kind of the economics of ideas. Then. I basically did a reset. I went out, was an entrepreneur for a while. You know, I, I, I had promised myself I would get out of my initial line of work after about 10 years because once you've been in a field for about 10 years, I think you start to become uh, a bottleneck and a roadblock instead of an innovator. So I did a reset in the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial thing on education, which I also care about, but then sold that, and now I'm working full-time on this, this new initiative about uh, charter cities. In the allocation of my time, Probably more time is devoted to somebody, you know, flying someplace to meet somebody who knows somebody who then knows somebody who knows the minister in Madagascar who eventually gets me in to meet the president in Madagascar. So there are a lot of conversations like that right now because I don't think people will take the practical details of a charter city seriously until they realize that there are places that would really like to do something like this. And I think once there's uh, a couple of you know one a couple of countries that want to come together around a particular site and and you know run with this idea then I think all of the both practical details and the subtle uh, intellectual details will um, uh, come much more sharply into uh, into focus so I've been a little slow to kind of write papers pushing people about you know how do, how do, how do we change preferences to incorporate um, norms about right and wrong, uh, mostly because I've been talking about these ideas with people, but I've been slow to write about that for my colleagues because I think the most important thing is to get uh, to make this into a, a kind of a reality in a particular place that people can imagine. And uh, um, and in terms of probabilities, I you know I I still think within a year or two we're we're going to have a place like that and we're going to have a chance at, at trying something really quite different.
0: Do a lot of people express skepticism about that because you're a, you're a pointy headed academic? You, da, 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 blah blah blah. Do you have is that a, is that a plus you're, or a minus? Being a point, uh, you don't really have a pointy head, but yeah,
1: yeah right. But is, oh, but, I think it. I, I think it's um, it's probably a, a, a small minus. Um, that that it it is you know it is a natural concern when someone from the university says we could do this in practice. You know, it's natural to say, okay, well, how, do you, how did you figure out if you could do it in practice? Did you just, you know, publish papers and all of your friends in their offices read your papers and you all talk to each other? You know, that, that people want to see some um, buy-in from others who have more uh, experience on the ground. And, and that's part of why these conversations with, with government officials and then other, other related um, uh, real-world parties um, are, are quite important.
0: Are you spending any time on what that first charter might look like? Um, I agree with you that it doesn't have to be a big, fat thing. Uh, We hope it wouldn't be, but how that executions – I mean, we've we've had some experience in the last decades, quote, writing constitutions. Um, This is something like that. Um, How are you going to – how can you help make that happen?
1: Yeah, I I think uh, one of the things to – be clear here is, is that if if this process succeeds, I have a, I have a non-profit called Charter Cities. If this, if this succeeds, Charter Cities could be a think tank that supports nations, but the nations have to be the key actors here. You know, I'm not going to design a charter. I'm not going to run a city. I mean, I have no authority, no basis for doing that. So it, it's very important to bring the various governments in as um, Players in this, and to let them decide what they would like to, to see in a in a charter like this, and then as a think tank, you know, as a member of a think tank, I can make observations about, you know, uh, if you do that, uh, you may have a lot of trouble attracting investors, you know, or uh, you may have trouble attracting employers, or this would be a great thing to do, or other places have tried something like that and that, that hasn't worked so well. So uh, once there's some some national actors involved. I think the role of advisor becomes uh, um, pretty clear, but I think it's a little presumptuous to try and get out too far in front of the you know the national actors uh, because you know the, the the details here could be quite quite different in different places.
0: Let me ask you a marketing question, but it also is a conceptual question. I had Diane Ravitch as a guest on recently on the program, and she talked about her disillusionment with some of the educational reform movement, and one of the things that she's become disillusioned about is charter schools yeah. and charter schools there's you know there's a lot of things you could say about this, but the fact is they haven't set the country on fire uh, in a positive way uh, the, the this to the extent we've been able to measure their impact, they have not done a dramatic job transforming student performance at least on test scores and i she concedes that well, maybe that's not what you want to look at, but they've been a mixed bag. It's also true that the really horrible ones uh, disappear, which is one of the reasons I think they're so great. The whole the whole idea is great, but there's a certain synergy, uh, analogy I would say between the two concepts of charter schools and charter cities. One of them being, well, the rules we're going to have better rules in the school. The, the public school system doesn't work so well. Uh so we'll have these new schools that have different and better rules. Do you think the choice of name of charter cities is helped by the reputation of charter schools? Uh do you think I've read the evidence correctly there that she has? Give me your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I yeah, I don't know if the choice of name was a wise one or not. I you know, I I like I was influenced more by William Penn's charter. Than charter schools, but more people probably think of charter schools when they hear about charter cities. Um, it does suggest the kind of flexibility and writing of, of localized rules. Um, so it, it, it gets the idea across, um, and I'm not finding, at least at the moment, that it's a disadvantage to have that name. On the substance of charter schools, it, it does raise an interesting question. I think some of the thoughtful people who have looked at successful educational systems around the world, have addressed this notion of coherence. There are many different parts of a school or educational system. There's curriculum. There's the actual schools and the rules implemented in those schools. There's assessments. There's um, higher-level schools. And all of these different... And then there's training for teachers as well. All of these different parts need to be coherent. And you could have different systems in different places that are designed differently, but they cohere in the sense that all those different parts work together. And what we're trying to do here in the United States is pull out one piece, the actual school building, and change it, but not necessarily align it with all of these other pieces. And so you're, you're taking a bite which is too small. It's worth asking that same question about uh, about a city. Um, but, I, but there I think the case is much stronger. It, there, there have been a number of things that people have called special zones that tried to create rules, new rules, and have opt-in. But those special zones were typically not self-contained. They depended on, for example, road transport through a nearby city, or they depended on a power system from the nearby city. So you get the same problem of a lack of coherence. You've got a local ex- economic zone that, that's counting on 24 by 7 power, and it's connected into a grid that can't, can't deliver that. The great thing about cities is they really are components, modules, that are relatively self-contained. They have some interfaces that they use to connect with the rest of the world. So it's a container ship, the fiber optic cable, the airport. But as long as you hold those constant, you can do pretty much anything you want within a city. So I would argue that the city really is the right unit to do things differently but still have everything be coherent and the problem with charter schools is that it's a it's a part of a big complementary system where fixing one piece alone doesn't, you know, doesn't fix the rest of the system.
0: What can someone read and what can someone do who is intrigued by your idea and wants to discover more and also um, maybe get involved? Are there any opportunities for that?
1: So there is a, a website um, www.chartercities.org. There are some um, news accounts and um, documents that I've written and others have written on that website. There's a something we're calling a blog, but it's not a "here's what's happening today" kind of blog. It's some kind of some thoughtful pieces that we post once a week or so on this gen- these general questions about cities and on the the dynamics of, of rules. So there's a blog post, for example, about uh, the the vote for congestion pricing in, in Stockholm. And um, I just did a blog post recently about um, squatter residents in Phnom Penh, a really wonderful article describing how cities are just so valuable that people will live in awful conditions yeah. in terms of sanitation to be able to be close uh, close to the action. So... The charter cities' kind of papers and materials and blog are uh, a good place for uh, for people to to read and learn more. And then um, uh, people can contribute things through uh, the there's a you know there's an inquiries uh, email where they can uh, they can write us as well.
0: My guest today has been Paul Rumber of Stanford University. Paul, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Great, thanks, Russ.